Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Writing just was like a release valve, I think. I think, you know, like rocks, paper, scissors, shoot. Sometimes it felt like grad school <laughs> was like drink, write, shoot. It was like, I don't know. It was it was like, and shoot there being like, hurt yourself. So like, if, okay, just try to write it out or drink it out or... I felt like in a very existentially panicky time and it felt like writing was something I had to do to stay afloat. And like writing was actually the best, the healthiest choice of these other things. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Today, I get to introduce somebody whose voice might already be familiar to you. It was definitely already familiar to me because I am a longtime fan of the show Radiolab. And today's guest is Lulu Miller, who is a science reporter and a radio producer and the co-host of Radiolab. Today, we are sharing a conversation with Lulu about her book, Why Fish Do Not Exist. She starts the book by telling a story about how her father, who was a scientist, introduced her pretty early to the second law of thermodynamics, which says that entropy is inevitable. He kind of weaned her on the idea that chaos is inevitable. It's one of the only things you can really count on. And therefore, kind of nothing really matters. If everything is chaos, then you're free to do what you will in the chaos. Uh, But little Lulu found this kind of intimidating, kind of intimidating news. Like if nothing matters and if everything is chaos, what's the point in doing anything? What's the point in continuing to exist at all? And this question sticks with her 
through her young life and gets kind of more and more urgent. And the book is about a moment when she turns sort of in a crisis point with this question. She turns to an obsession with the biologist David Starr Jordan, who was a pretty unusual single-minded guy, a taxonomist, who is dead set on identifying and classifying species of fish. Lulu and I talked about David Starr Jordan, about heartbreak, about writing for radio versus writing for books, and a little bit about fish. Okay, so it's it's late winter, early early spring of 2011, and um, I'm living in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I'm on a run, and I'm coming up a hill, and um, and it's. So I can't tell if this is just like my memory filling this in being the right time of day, but it's dusk. (laughs) But I think it's actually dusk. Um, And and I'm crossing a train track. Um, And I, I don't know like if it's the crossing of the track or if it's the run being almost done. I'm on the way home from the run in the forest, um, by like a little, a little river trail. And I'm, I'm running back to my apartment. And, but I, it like, I remember that it, it hit me that I was basically that this person who I'd been pining after for years, who I'd been with for seven years and who I didn't want to, you know, I was trying to get back together with, with all my heart, um, like it, it, it finally hit me that that he was done with me, and and like the reason it was then was because a couple weeks before I had written, and this is the part I feel so embarrassed about, but like my most shamey, desperate, like, can you just? tell me you're out there like I don't like but it was a needy in retrospect it I'm blushing like you should never put that kind of pressure on someone you know to like have to be okay but I I was just at I was at a real apex of of loneliness and not accepting that we weren't like tethered to each other forever Mm. and so I wrote that it was in a low place and I'd written this email that's just like can you just say the word okay? Like, or it was just a like, can I have some sign of life? And and it had it had been about three or four or five weeks since I had written that, and he still hadn't written back. Um, and I was like, thick skull, getting the message. <laughs> he he's not there for you. Like he is not, he's not in your life anymore. Um, and. And at the time, that felt like the most devastating pill to have to swallow. Like, it, I still couldn't quite believe it. And I, and there was something about crossing that track where I, like, I just accepted it. I was like, okay. And, and in the moment, I mean, now I'm, like, over a decade removed from it. So it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as as like I, I was about to say hurt, but it's not even hurt. Like it's something way more meta than hurt, like way more nauseating than hurt. Um, but it was like a drop. I, I literally felt like I dropped through to an underworld where I wasn't alive anymore. And mm. I think 
um, I, I just remember like kind of feeling undead for a while, like after that, that moment. And, and in my life, there was a, just a couple, like, I think that, that was a moment where I was like, oh, oh, cool. I'm a living ghost. Like I, I'm walking. I, I felt upside down, like truly upside down. Like I, I felt like it, there was a, a very big existential, like drop through, um, right after that moment. And in certain ways that made me like a lot more reckless in my life for a while. And, and I remember I would go on runs late at night in parks and in fort. Like I just, I just didn't care. Like I was just didn't care. Um, and I was like, I'm still here. I'm not doing anything to hurt myself, but I'm not doing anything to be careful, you know? And, um, and so that was, there were some neg, I mean, there were some like, there was some stuff, it translated to like a recklessness for a while, I think. Um, but, but then with your prompt of like, how did it affect your writing? I think that it also, it changed my writing big time. Like I just started writing more what I needed to write. <laughs> like I didn't, I stopped worrying as much about, um, I was in an MFA program at the time and, and it had been there for about a year and had come, had come there for after do, from after doing radio for a while. And so a lot of my stuff was, I think, too um, obvious, you know, in radio, yeah. especially as I was trained in the early days, you like do a scene, say what it means. It was like, it was like a little dogmatic. Um, I wasn't cracking the like minimalist subtext was completely elusive to me. Like I, I was, um, I couldn't write in the way that seemed valued and I couldn't crack it. And I kept wanting to, um, and, and I don't know, like I stopped for, I just kind of stopped caring. Like, and I wrote stuff that it's not that, and this isn't a story of like, and then my writing got great. It isn't, it isn't <laughs> that either, but it, um, I got, no, I just suddenly stopped. I stopped thinking about all my tethers to the world, like tethers to the classroom, tethers to my family, tethers to who I thought I should be. And I just like the, the writing became much more about what I needed it to be. Why do you feel like it was this person or this idea of a person that when you became untethered from him, everything else untethered too? Like, what was it about this um, relationship, I guess, or this need that kind of triggered everything, everything else, this unreality feeling? I think that I thought that this person, even with bumps along the road, was going to be a permanent in my life. I felt like that kind of like, um, I, I'm pausing because I'm, I'm trying to, I'm almost just trying to explain it because it, it, it's some kind of particular feeling of, of, I thought that sort of as like rocky and threadbare as things could get 
that that we were a like a kind of always coming back to each other kind of relationship and which is another way of saying probably I was like taking the relationship for granted big time you know but I mm. think that I think that like so much of the world felt has always felt uncertain and impermanent and chaos just being like the 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 water in which we swim but I think I thought I felt like I, I thought I found a telephone pole like in a, mm, in a flood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought like, I, I thought I had found the, the post, the, like the home, the, the one permanent thing. And so when that finally, and I had done a, a crap ton of things to make him not want to stay in a relationship with me, but I don't know. I just, I think I thought he was a, a, a telephone pole. And, and when, when I realized he was a human, he was another element of the chaos that, or like the telephone pole got struck by lightning. It, it just, it was like, I think that I thought it was the one permanent thing and then it wasn't either. And so then I was like really casting around, you know, just like waving around in the wind anew. And um, and I yeah, it was just kind of like a long, a long free fall for a while. Is it as like tidy as writing came in to be the new the new telephone pole? Oh, or? hell no. No, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Right, Writing right. just was like a release valve, I think. I think, you know, like rocks, paper, scissors, shoot. Sometimes it felt like grad school <laughs> was like drink, write, shoot. It was like, I don't know. It was it was like, and shoot there being like hurt yourself. So like, if, okay, just try to write it out or drink it out. Or, or if not, like it was just this, like I felt like in a very existentially panicky time. and like it it felt like i writing was something i had to do to stay afloat and like writing was actually the best the healthiest choice of these other things <laughs> and and writing i think didn't at all feel like a telephone pole because it wasn't permanent there often weren't words when i sat down or there were words that led me somewhere nowhere or that didn't lead me to where I wanted to go, like you have an image for a piece and you, and, and then you want to reach the image and then you can't get there or it leads you back to the ugly reflection of yourself or it leads you to nothing clever or it leads you to, a, you know, like it, it was not a telephone pole, but it was, um, it actually felt like the hard, healthy path. Like it felt like take all the swirling feelings and instead of just like, muting them or giving in to them or like drowning them with something louder for a little go see where they lead you go go be with them go let them out and and see if there's like if you actually stick with them if they take you somewhere interesting or somewhere where like you realize you still care about a different little speck of something on this planet <laughs> you know like so that i think it didn't feel like a a telephone pole but it it felt like a a, a almost like a necessity um in a way that in a way that almost reminded me of like 
teenage journaling in a way that I kind of like looked back on and laughed at that point. Like our writing should be better than that. Our writing should be, it should have more restraint. It should have more subtext. It should have more intelligence. It shouldn't be that emo, whatever. But I almost, I think I almost returned to it as like, I need it to be this right now. And I don't even care. Like, I don't even care if you think this piece is too obvious or too emotional or whatever. I think it just finally, uh, for the first time kind of in my life as someone who has cared so much about what people think of me, um, I think I just, it helped me get to a place where I just started to like learn to use the act of writing as a kind of a, a pathway, uh, like a Oh, words. What's that word? What's that word when you're forging a path with the hiking stick? Like you're hacking the path. Oh, like a machete? Yeah. Or just like the the act of writing was kind of was yeah, was 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 hacking through, but but actually moving forward. So I don't know. Does that make sense? Not a telephone pole, more a path. Yeah, that makes sense. Um the the like goofy thing that my metaphorical brain would was like okay it's not a telephone pole in a flood it's like a it's like a it's like a floaties or something yeah <laughs> like yeah. can keep you up It'll keep you up yeah 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 uh, and you had been you know you're as far as i understand and correct me if i'm wrong but you had your work had been kind of about science before you went to your mfa you'd been a science journalist and had been working on producing stories sort of about science and was that like, were you already in that time in grad school starting to write about David Starr Jordan and taxonomy and other, you know, were you still writing within the realm of science or were you doing other other things? Um, to, so David Starr Jordan, I started r- after I left grad school. So he, but, but no, I was kind of, I mean, I sort of, I've always loved fiction and what, and like, my favorite hobby as a little kid was to just like peel away and write up imaginary stories and see where they'd go. And and like my dream, forbidden dream life was to be a fiction writer. And I was like, I know that'll never happen, but that's like what I want to be. And, um, and so when I came to Radiolab, um, uh, kind of, I had, I was right out of college and I was trying to write stories and like, had a different set of day jobs and and then I heard radio and I heard radio lab and it and it felt like this swirl like it honestly felt like science fiction it felt almost like fiction to me where there'd be these beautiful images um and it felt like what I craved out of fiction but then it had this sudden layer of oh my gosh but this all this stuff is real it's non-fiction like it's real it's here and so that was I kind of got pulled in without much of a scientific background no journalism background but just wanting to like make the stories and step into the worlds. Like, how did they find those stories? How did they find those worlds? How did they use music and writing to like erect those worlds, you know? Um, and, and so I always kind of felt like I was those, those five years that I was learning radio, the first five years that I was working in radio, I, I still felt like I was a, a wannabe fiction writer, <laughs> like Trumbull, like who, who happened to be needing to use reality as her tools. And then, and then when I went to grad school, I finally, I was, it, it was partly out of a feeling like I was too shy and too nervous to be a journalist, to be a 
good journalist, which requires courage and backbone and all this stuff I didn't have much of. And um, and so I I did this MFA program to study fiction writing. And it was like the 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 fantasy dream of my life was to get two years to then just go live in a fictional world. Um, and so I was writing, I was writing like sci-fi, magical realism, like very fiction nay stuff. Um, that's what I was doing then. Oh, amazing. Okay. And then there were and and they were not very they were very they were not very good. But <laughs> but that's what I was doing. But then I started having some fun with it and they continued to not be good. But actually that was like part of the threshold was sometimes I would write stuff just to journey, like just to have fun. And I don't know. That was like part of the crossing over was like, okay, I can't crack the like New Yorker style. Like I I was just like, that's okay. I'm going to go write about a a talking horseshoe crab or whatever. The, the question I'm thinking about asking you, like, is sort of has to do with going back to this image of chaos, which is such a central, it's like kind of the central counter, count, like adversary of, of this book in a yeah. way. And, yeah. or, or you were sort of report chaos to be one of the great adversaries of your life mm-hmm. um, in this book, at least. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you're describing a period where you were v- feeling very chaotic, but writing was something that was helping as opposed to hurting yeah. in that chaos. Yeah. When did when did you decide that you wanted to write about chaos or this particular form of chaos as it as it, you know, manifests in why fish don't exist? Yeah. So I think that was probably about a year after this thresholdy moment on the train track like maybe a year and a half later um and I was still in Charlottesville and I would sit I remember like there was this one area of the apartment it was a second story kind of attic-y vibe place with yellow walls um and like there was this one part of the apartment where I'd always sit like it just felt like a gravitational pull and it was it was on the ground against a wall and I realized like eventually because the apartment had kind of windows that went down almost to the floor and it was like the one spot where you couldn't see me from the outside and also I couldn't really see much of the outside and I think it was like the most fetal hidden (laughs) hidden space was just the space the kind of the only place I felt comfortable and and I remember it like I think part of that was like, it was the one place I could keep kind of both pining for a person I knew had left, but I didn't want to accept and also keep writing these stories, which I could see were not good and wasn't going anywhere. Like there, it was the place I could stay delusional because I didn't have to see the reality of the outside world. Um, and, and I remember like it was in that little hunchy hidden posture that where I was just like assuming that that feeling delusional or confident in yourself is bad and that you shouldn't feel that way but then I wondered 
there was like, I don't know, that's where I wondered about this person who I didn't know his name at this point. I had just, I had been on a, a tour of a science museum many years before on a science reporting thing. And I'd heard the little detail, this like little detail that should not possess somebody's life, but but did for me. But this little detail that after the 1906 earthquake, whoever was in charge of the fish collection at the California Academy of Sciences uh, began the practice of sewing the labels to the fish. Um, and and that little detail, like it, it literally snagged on me like a chip in your throat, a thorn in your side. Like it, I was like, who who used that sewing needle? Who did that? Who who looked at you know, what had happened is all the fish came down in the earthquake and their names were separated from them. And who looked at that primal image of chaos winning and like stripping humans' knowledge from the creatures? Who looked at that and didn't just accept defeat? Who looked at that and was like, I'm going to invent a way to stitch my name back on? Um, and I think literally sitting there, I was like, oh, I would love to write a one-page essay called Man vs. Chaos. And I want to, you know what? That's a nonfiction story. Let me go find out what happened to him because he had an ending. Like, I'm assuming he's a parable. I'm assuming he's a bad guy. Kind of at the beginning, I was like, maybe he, you know, like he seems like an Icarus type, like he's going to lose. Chaos is going to win again. But in that moment, it was the first time where I was like, wait, maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was. A, maybe he has something to teach me. Maybe his life didn't end in ruin. So let me go find out his name and see if it's okay to be a little bit delusional and overconfident. And that's what started it. I truly, I truly, truly thought it would be like a one-page little vignette poet, prose poem. Um, and then, you know, once I started looking into it, that was like, I, I had, I, that's, then it just, it led me to all these other places. But that was where it started. It's not a very good story, but it just, I do remember that. <laughs> No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. I don't think that's a, a not a very good story. I, I First of all, the image of being in this like womb-like place where no one can see you and you cannot really see anyone is really evocative. And also, I it, it kind of tracks with the other part of this story you're telling, which is that if you're in a place where you feel like your whole life is sort of floating, as a, a floating, I, the image I keep having is like, you know, in those movies where something weird happens and all of us, it's like maybe Amelie, like all of a sudden you're in zero gravity. Yeah, and all yeah, of totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's like if your life feels like that, where like everything that's supposed to be obeying the laws of gravity is sort of floating around your ears. I can totally imagine why you would want to figure out how somebody can go through something so completely kind of devastating as the earthquake that undid so much work that he had done and decide that you're just going to sit down with the needle and keep going. Like yeah. how you, how you, how you summon the, the hubris or whatever, whatever it is to kind of keep, keep, keep about it. Um, even when the laws of physics keep, keep fucking you over. <laughs> yeah. And so it was like, it was an emotionally real question. Like it was just, it was a realization that when I heard the story, I had written him off as a fool and like as overconfident and then realizing, oh, but he's not a parable. He's not a Greek myth. He was a real dude. I don't even know his name. I don't know what happened. And so it was like, oh, I could find that out. And that might be interesting because maybe it'll give me permission to keep delusion pining and doing the things that don't seem to be good for me. But anyway, but 
but then it was also like the it was I think it felt like something I could figure out like I didn't feel good at anything I didn't feel good at fiction writing I didn't feel good at life I didn't feel good at relationships I didn't feel good at journalism I hated bothering people. I felt too shy. I felt too ineloquent. Like I just, but I was like, but I know, but I think I have this, I've got the research skills. Like I can, I got to call, I got to call, I got to call someone at the museum to get to the tour guide who gave me the tour to tell me who he was talking about. And then I got to fact check it. But like, I was like, I can research, I can go back to nonfiction, which I know how to do a little bit more than fiction because it was my job for five years. But I can do it on a dead person, so I don't have to go, like, interview anyone. (laughs) Although I then ended up interviewing people. But it felt at the beginning like this kind of... And I don't just have to face my bad ideas and my inability to write dialogue well and no clear ending that, you know, like, I can still go to nonfiction where there are actual just answers, where, like, you can just go find a thing. Um, and I was like, I felt like maybe I could have the competence to do it. Like it was like a dream little task for me to go try to find it out because it was, I was leaping back out of fiction, back into reality where there might be answers. And it was the kind of research that I weirdly love primaries you know, primary source on obscure topics that like no one's ever poured over. Um, and, and then it gave me a hunt, you know, like it, I don't know. So I think there was also like, it was a dream question and then it was an existentially important question. And then it was kind of like the dream scenario to just give me something to go hunt at. Yeah. It felt kind of unusual to be reading a book of nonfiction where there's some really I don't know. It, was, it felt kind of unusual to be reading a book of nonfiction where the chase is for something that is in an archive somewhere <laughs> about someone who's been dead a long time, mm-hmm. but the stakes feel really high. Like the stakes feel really high in this book um, for, you know, coming to understand who this taxonomist was and what his legacy really means. Um and i i'm curious if it if it felt that like i i had moments of like real nervousness for you <laughs> uh, as i was reading thinking like oh my god i hope this turns out like what is lulu going to make of this and like yeah. is it going to solve is it going to solve the problem of how do i go on yeah no um, which is like a problem with pretty high stakes yeah. and i'm did it feel that way as you were researching it and how did you think about uh, um balancing those stakes or even just laying them out for a reader while yeah. you were writing up the project i mean it totally did you know especially as i set out like in the earlier phases of it the it really did and it and it was the kind of thing it was hard to lie at like it it's naked <laughs> it's so naked like it's so hard to admit why i was so passionate about finding hunting down an answer um you know and it's and i think yeah the stakes like felt huge and then when if i'd ever talk about it while i was working on it 
I'd always be like, oh, it's about a taxonomist whose quest for order led him to madness. Like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't talk about myself. Like I just tried to make it seem like a, a wild madman from history, you know, and I, it was, if I tried to get into it a little bit more, I'd get really tongue tied. People would also look really bored or also panicked, like worried for me. <laughs> um, but like mostly out of boredom, like, why are you thinking about dead ichthyologists ways that they not just like um, sort of ontologically ordered things, but literally physically, why do you care about obscure storage practices of ichthyological taxonomy? I mean, it was people were worried, but um, yeah, I don't know. It did. It felt really high stakes. And then I think laying it out, I, I think in the first draft, I didn't have as much, like I had a little bit about, I mean, the first draft kind of came out in this, like I sat down to really get going on the essay while, while I was staying with my friend Heather, who I know, you know, and, um, in Chicago, I had this like six week period and I just was like, I'll, I'll work on this. I'll go hard on this. Then it'll be a short essay. And then it just spiraled and it was like 40 pages, single spaced. And, and it, it's, its form came out where like I wrote a little, a little bit about my dad was in there and his godlessness and his insistence that the proper stance is to be very humble and just like know your tininess in every step. Um, so he was always in there as a counterpoint. They both have big mustaches. They're both scientists. One of them is all about humility. One is all about hubris. Like they, you know, so they were, my dad was always in there. And so nihilism and what does it all mean was in there, but in a safer way. And then, um, yeah, and then I handed in my first real draft once I, you know, and then I put it down for years. I put it down for years and I came back to work on it again years later. Um, and, and that's when I turned in the first draft and like my editor, John Cox was just like, this is cool. There's lots of pretty parts and neat, good pat on the back, cool research. But, <laughs> um, but what, why do you care so much? And then that was kind of, I did some more free writing and, and wrote a very, like the first honest attempt at, you know, I, I was in a, like a, a really hard place and I have struggled with some really dark thoughts and I had a lot of shame about having cheated. Like then the shame, then all the most shameful stuff came in. And then once it was there on the page and he, and he said it kind of started to click stuff together for him. Then then I had to like walk around for a couple months and be like, oh, do I want to do I want to tell the things that I literally have told almost nobody that I feel like huge amounts of my personality has been created to like hide the fact that I have dark thoughts. Like I do I want to talk about this stuff that I don't even think anyone cares about or would care about in me or that I am, should even be feeling. Um, but I, I think it was just once it was out and he kind of said it, it helped things. I. I started and he was like, but we'll only put it in there if you feel comfortable. Then I started thinking about, okay, if this helps it click together and it is on like it is why I'm writing it. It's very much why I'm writing it. Then maybe the way I can do it is through economy of words. And if I just talk about those big things, but I talk about them in really surprise or like language that I hope is surprising and is wildly e economic, like then that's kind of the deal I struck with myself. And and so I go into heavy stuff, but it's it's literally like four paragraphs here and there. And and they're just they're tight and they're fast. And then I whiplash you back into the story. And so that was 
that was my deal that I struck with myself was like it can go in here, but it can't it can't dwarf like every word has to be thought over. And and I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think I mean, for starters, you don't need that many words to develop stakes when what you're talking about is trying to learn how to live with hopelessness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's such a big um, and clear, it's such a big and clear existential problem and existential threat that you can really, it felt like you really got away with sort of tight economizing. It Like the way it read to me was that there had been this like accidental setting off of a ticking clock in this like childhood conversation with Mm. your father Mm. about, about how there is no meaning to anything. And we Mm. do, you know, we are not, we are not inherently meaningful. And that that, while it was intended maybe really benevolently Mm -hmm. and to sort of impart the kind of joy to you that he gets from that idea set off this, like this, this like canker sore (laughs) process that needed to be Mm. remedied um, via this other, this other man, um, who's, who, who like holds the solution, but then doesn't quite hold the solution that you think it does. Right. And totally leads me astray. But then along the way, yeah, I think that's fair. Like, I think, I still don't think I've like conquered the, the canker sore. Like, I don't, I don't think I'm like, Ooh, there was a ticking time bomb and I had to diffuse it and prove that there is meaning. Um, because I still am like at the end of the day, so like such a daddy's girl. Like I, the the nihilism, sure, like mess me up, but I, I worship it. I worship him still. Like, <laughs> and so I, I still kind of buy in, but I do think, I do think in a real way, like the process of writing gave me more like concrete amulets to hold to hold toward that big dark void and 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 i'm not sure they'll always work but they make me feel really good (laughs) and they kind of (laughs) work they work enough they've been working enough (laughs) yeah i loved that you didn't leave it in a place where you're like it's all good (laughs) yeah questions answered um i've never you know like tight tidy ending um because that that contingency actually I mean, first of all, it just feels honest, but also feels like it really reflects um, the the natural world and kind of the scientific process that seems to be your path. Your your interest in science and your interest in the natural world, which seems to sort of be the path toward negotiating meaning versus meaninglessness, mm-hmm. um, and both the scientific process and you know, like all of those things are themselves full of contingencies. Like they're not processes that finish. Um, and so that it felt like it was mirrored really nicely there. I wanted to ask you before I forget, I need to make sure that I ask you um, how you think about writing the natural world, in particular, writing versus 
radio producing. Sometimes your work involves capturing and celebrating the the world as we live in it in in ways that get to really take advantage of sound. And in this book, you weren't able to do that. How do you, I don't know, what's your practice around um, around your subject? Well, I don't know. You the way you you when you said natural world, like I I just smile. Like I I think you mean all of it, but I'm picturing more nature and trees and the you know the creatures and organisms on this planet. But I I was thinking like lately. I don't know. I feel like everything I write ends up just being about the woods. <laughs> like I just want to write so that I can describe the woods and think about being in the woods and. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I don't know, I think in terms of the, the difference, um, between audio and, and print, like audio always feels like more of a puzzle for me in the, in the pleasurable way, like a game where you go out and you kind of have to go get the pieces, um, and your, your inherent clumsinesses and existential drives and shortcomings and strengths and irritations like you def you you help to create the the puzzle pieces um both like what is the puzzle of is it of a lighthouse is it of a like airbrushed lisa frank wolf <laughs> by moonlight you know the image is kind of like what's the topic You're, who are you going to go interview and what are you interviewing them about then that's kind of like the setting of the puzzle. And then how you ask your questions and how you follow up and how how you interact in space with that person and where you choose to, and when you choose to conduct the interview and all those things, those then create like the shapes. And then you go home and you realize you don't have a full set and actually you have six different puzzles, but you're going to like take all these pieces and then put them together and and then put give something back but you've got matter like you've got stuff and maybe you'll make an ugly puzzle and it'll be boring and no one will want to look at it but you've got you've always got stuff um and radio in that way for me is like it's oh it's really pleasurable it's addictive like it's like a game it's just like <laughs> oh i could go back and iterate and iterate and make it tighter and tighter and more surprising and make that edge weird and instead of actually using narration there i should just use music to like conjure something ominous but they don't know why and it shouldn't be because i'm in a happy scene and what are the and like there's so many options and accidents can happen like you just i listen to drafts walking or running all the time and it's like oh i should put that it's just it's so fun and it's like maddening but it's so fun whereas writing feels so much more like you're you're climbing the mountain and you're building the mountain as you go and it's it's just um and it can be fun, but it doesn't feel like a puzzle. It feels like an existential, like, <laughs> I don't even know, climb. Um, it just feels like a different thing where you're in a fog. You can't even see the horizon. You're not even sure what's in your bag. Like, hopefully you'll cough out some ideas. <laughs> like, it just, writing feels it always feels harder, but then, but then because there aren't like as many constraints it can in the moments of freedom like where you just have a breakthrough or like some word opens a door to a part like a paragraph or two that just flows and you didn't even know you were going to connect these two ideas or you didn't even know you were bugged about it or you didn't even remember you had you're pulling up some interview or some study that 
down in there, like that it can be this, I think when, for me, like when I can let go of outlines, I'm, I, I outline obsessively and like I always want to know what I'm building and where I'm going. And when I can actually just like toss those aside, some of the most fun, like some of my favorite creative moments of my life happen in writing. They're just a lot harder to get to for me. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you, in just in terms of getting an, a reader or a listener to see what you're seeing in mm-hmm. the woods or whatever, or mm-hmm. feel what you're feeling when you're researching these fish, do they require, I would imagine they require different approaches. How do you, do, do you, do you have like a, a theory of the case there or is it just something that you kind of do by feel? I think it's, I think a lot comes in editing or I'm learning. I mean, I'm, I still feel like a pretty, in certain ways, Bambi writer. Like I, I'm still learning as I go, but obviously, I mean, we all are, but like I feel particularly on the not sure what I'm doing, but side, but um, I think what I always care about, like for me, it's just the, it's the wedding of these, these two forces. Like one is the kind of recklessness that I was talking about at the beginning. Like I needed some of that in my process. Like I needed to get, I needed to stop caring a little bit to start getting anywhere. (laughs) Um, And, and um, just like allowing that stuff to come out early. And then, and then a like, obsessive. I mean, I think being trained in making radio before there were really podcasts. And so being trained in terrestrial radio, the kind of radio that's just going to come out of your radio, if you turn it on, we were kind of obsessive. There was no back 30 seconds button. Like you just, someone had to get on the train and stay on the train and you had to always have there be enough suspense and plot and not too many digressions. Um, And so I think being trained in kind of like a freight trainee kind of storytelling that is hard to shake. And I'm, I'm, I like that. Like, I'm proud that I have that. Like, I, I, I don't want to waste anyone's time. I want to like, I want, I think I, I let it, I, it's like the first part of the process of just letting everything come out. And then in revision, just, just iterating, reiterating, breaking it, rewriting it, trying things together, just making it like I want it to feel like a ride, which doesn't mean I always want everything to be an MTV fast cut, but I want I want there to be whiplash. Like I want it to be fast and then finally lead you to like a really slow, long, quiet scene where I'm still describing like the pedal of a star that doesn't exist, but could if you listen to a German psychologist who tell you that names are, things are better remembered if they don't have a name. Like I, I want to, I want it to be a ride. And so I, I think in a way they actually feel really, once it's out, they actually feel pretty darn similar. And I'll, I'll read drafts out loud, take them on walks of writing. Like I edit, I edit in sound way better than I do looking at things because I can just hear the shape and I can hear where it needs to get a little, a little cut, a little liposuction, a little Frankenstein the head, put that on the bottom. Like it, I can just, I can see the shape of the story. So I, I, I edit my, all my writing. I edited the whole book in sound. Oh, amazing. That's so cool. I've yeah. never heard someone do that before. Yeah. It, hel- it just helps me see it. Like it helps me see past my attachment to words. It helps me see where I'm being too cutesy or like, or like 
I mean, I'm sure a lot of that stays in because there's certain elements I'm like, okay with. I'm yeah, I'm kind of hokey. Like, I don't care. That cracked me up. Like my editor was like, this is too much. I'm like, I don't care. It's a great homophone and it's got to stay. And he's like, I don't know. But I don't know. Anyway, so they feel once they're at revision, they feel really similar where I'm like, I don't want to waste your time. I want to surprise you. And I want to give you at least one moment of quiet. And I want to do that in everything that I make. That's so cool. It feels like it's, uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, that still sounds a lot like wrangling chaos, just <laughs> in different formats yeah, for totally a living. Yeah, it totally is. It totally is. And that's, I think, I think that's like why probably my heart is always the most at home in radio because it, it is like you literally go out and capture chaos on on a, you know, on a piece of digital tape and then you... And then you just sculpt it and and cut it up and try to give it back in a way that can can give you something and give someone else something. And and I like that. I like that the job is like you go hunting for the thing that is in great abundance all around us. And then you cut it up in a way that's and make a sculpture that that hopefully could mean something to some people. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.